Good morning, it's great to be with you again by the marvel of electronic technology. We're studying in, um, uh, this morning in Matthew chapter nine. It's been exciting to see the Lord Jesus work and move and teach among, uh, uh, among the people. And we're gonna continue in that this morning. To give us kind of a background in this morning's um, verses, I'd like to imagine being present during the last few weeks of the Lord Jesus' ministry. And we're going to rely on our imagination this morning for a first-hand account of the events that occurred in Capernaum. Something extraordinary is happening. We've seen wondrous works and heard astonishing teaching from a rabbi, a teacher, more accurately, a prophet. We recognize him as the promised Messiah. Listen to what's happened here in Capernaum. There was a dreadful meeting scheduled, an inquiry to decide what to do with our rabbi, Messiah Jesus. The Pharisees gathered in all their solemn, self-righteous splendor, complete with their usual frowns and low whispers. You could feel the tension as we waited. Just as the meeting was called to order, the ceiling tiles started to shift and sunlight streamed into the packed room. The hole widened in the roof and it took a few minutes, but friends lowered a paralyzed man on a pallet to where Jesus was seated. Imagine the indignation of our Pharisees. It shocked their sensibilities. Order was finally restored and Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and not in a low voice announced, man, your sins are forgiven. The indignation on the faces of the Pharisees turned to horror. Jesus asked them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? He told the man to rise and walk. The paralytic was healed. Immediately he rose and walked out, glorifying the Lord. We praise the Lord too. Sometime later, Jesus walked up to the city tax office. Without introduction, he called to Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, follow me. That was all he said. And that was exactly what Matthew did. He dropped his accounting book, rose up, and followed him. He hasn't been seen back at the tax office since. Matthew hosted a huge dinner, inviting his former colleagues and some of the city's notorious. What a collection. Jesus sat with them. He talked with them. He ate with them. Whatever resentment had smoothed over since the paralytic's healing has been fanned back into full flame. The winds of change are blowing. It's difficult to know how our Messiah will lead through the maze of Jewish law and tradition. Through this imaginary eyewitness account, I hope to bring us up to date and give us some background for the verses that we'll explore this morning. Let's turn to Matthew 9 and uh, starting at verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, 
and both are preserved. We'll look at these verses in three parts. We'll see that the disciples of John question Jesus or they complain to him. Jesus showed the absurdity or the unreasonableness of their concern and Jesus announced a new era. As we have time, then uh, we'll make application to our lives. Let's pray. Lord, you're an amazing Savior, amazing Messiah, uh, amazing Lord. And um, so it's with uh, joy and anticipation that we open your word and we seek to gain insights to apply in our lives, to uh, honor you and to become more like you. We pray that you would honor our goal, our, um, our desire uh, in your name. Amen. The disciples of John complained to Jesus in verse 14. They came to him and said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Who asked this question? Well, it was the followers of John the Baptist. Remember, John was the one we read about in Matthew 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John preached repentance. Many came to him from Jerusalem and from all Judea. So faithful and convicting was John's message that King Herod arrested John and bound him in prison, which may be why John wasn't in front of Jesus asking the question. God had separated John from birth. He, um, he said, he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. John may even have been a Nazarite. No razor touching his head, not enjoying the simple pleasure of a haircut. John was stern self-denying, abstaining from the basic comforts of life in an effort to draw close to the Lord. John was toughened by the harsh desert winds and by his meager diet. We expect that John's disciples were as rigorous and strict as he. As they approached Jesus and his disciples with their question, they may have eyed the disciples with a disdain of battle-hardened veterans toward fresh recruits. Although John's ministry was over, it had been effective. He had accomplished his mission, and there remained followers. The one fault that we might find with John's disciples is that he had directed them early to follow Jesus, and yet they did not. That's the disciples of John. Who were the disciples of Jesus? Well, they had followed Jesus for less than a year at this point. In Matthew's case, perhaps only days or weeks. They were wide-eyed with wonder at the spiritual realities Jesus showed them. They were, in comparison to John's disciples, untried and unproven. The Pharisees are the third group mentioned. They were the stiff, formal, professional religionists ever slinking around behind the Lord and his followers, ready to ambush. They fasted often, as we read in our verse. And in Proverbs 20, we 
we read, most men will proclaim each his own goodness. The Pharisees contorted their faces while fasting to appear extra spiritual to their admirers. Their tactic here was to sow discord, to divide and conquer, to set two groups against each other. The Pharisees were no friends of John the Baptist. John referred to them early as a brood of vipers. The Pharisees seemed to have planted the suggestion among John's disciples, something simple like, why do you fast and, and Jesus' disciples do not? Luke actually records in his gospel that it was the scribes and Pharisees who asked about fasting. Why did they ask? We trust the sincerity of John's disciples. They were not hypocrites like the Pharisees. We should listen to their question. Jesus did. John's disciples were concerned with what they perceived to be loose living by Jesus' disciples. We are fasting, uh, Mark indicated in his gospel. We were fasting while you were feasting with sinners and reprobates. You need to straighten up your lives to match your profession. And what could be more help, helpful to your faith than fasting and praying? John's disciples were earnest. They sought to build up, not tear down. Throwing this question at Jesus was a masterstroke by the Pharisees. They sought to corner Jesus. Now Jesus must either condemn the disciples of John for undue strictness or admonish his own followers for their looseness. We should note here that any legalists like the Pharisees with their empty profession become their own standards of spirituality. If we do more than they do, it's too much. If we do less than they do, it's too little. But Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, shows his appreciation for both John's disciples and his own followers, and he'll use the opportunity to announce something far greater. Jesus showed the disciples of John the absurdity of their complaint, their question. He's going to explain to John's disciples what the situation is today and what the situation will be in the future. Presently, he said, the bridegroom is among his friends. Jesus presented himself as the bridegroom. Why? John the Baptist himself gives us a clue in response to the widening influence of Jesus' ministry as John the Baptist was himself ministering. He told uh, the, the people who asked, he said, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. In a word, Jesus is the bridegroom because of the bride. John said, I am not the Christ. I'm not the bridegroom. I don't have the bride. Jesus has the bride. Jesus chose the title of bridegroom for himself. It's a picture that shows something of his joy, his expectancy, his eagerness toward his redeemed ones, to bring them into intimacy with himself and to share his glory. We get a prediction of this in Isaiah 62, 
as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Who were the friends of the bridegroom? Certainly his disciples and others who share his joy, his anticipation. Who would bring gloom to the wedding? Alfred Edersheim in his Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah wrote, the presence of Jesus marked the marriage week. And by common practice and according to rabbinic law, this was to be a time of unmixed festivity. All mourning was to be suspended. Even on the Day of Atonement, the bride could relax one of the strictest fasts. Imagine in our day, one of our weddings, a poor sad sack who pulls aside the bridegroom and asks, what do you think about our economy? Do you think you'll be able to keep your job? How will you be able to raise a family in your little apartment? It's out of place. It's inappropriate for the festive occasion. For the disciples, Messiah was among them, bringing forgiveness, release from spiritual bondage, healing of the sick. The joy of his followers was like that of a wedding banquet. In Luke 10, Jesus sent out 70 disciples two by two. When they returned, they exclaimed to Jesus with joy, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Fasting would have been out of place. Shall we fast just for the sake of fasting? Fasting is a self-affliction needed when we need an edge on our prayer, a, ser a seriousness about an urgent request that we have. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 14, we read about unnecessary fasting. Jonathan and his armor bearer began slaughtering a garrison of the Pharisees by the Lord's hand, his deliverance. There was potential for a great victory that day. Foolishly, King Saul, Jonathan's father, put his warriors under oath. Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening. Saul's Warriors fainted under the restriction and would have won a larger victory had they been allowed to eat. That's the present. Jesus said the friends of the bridegroom are with him. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. What did he mean? From the height of his own joy, our Savior looked to the cross of Calvary. Cruel hands would nail him to the cross and hasten his exit from the world. By illustration, Mount Whitney stands as the highest elevation in the continental U.S. It's only 135 miles from Death Valley, the lowest point in North America. And this pictures the Lord Jesus from his height of joy to the depth of his anguish. He could see the cross from that height. In Hebrews 12 we read, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus was taken from his disciples in death and burial, and since his ascension, he has been bodily absent from his disciples. Jesus said, then they will fast. Uh, he said that they will not mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, but when the days 
but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Notice the interchange of the words mourn and fast. The friends will not mourn when the bridegroom is with them. The Holy Spirit uses this word mourn to apply to the disciples after the Lord's death. We read in Mark 16, 10, those who had been with him mourned and wept. They were sad for his departure. Jesus was able to hold the same, at the same time the towering heights of joy and the depths of anguish in his heart. The disappointment of his absence from his disciples did not diminish the anticipation of his wedding day. Hope deferred did not make his heart sick. It didn't weaken his, his resolve. Rather, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross with all its shame and loss. Jesus asks us, his disciples today, to keep these in our hearts as well, the anticipation of our union with him and the sorrow of our being absent from him. His followers today must fast and pray. We fast for urgent needs, for impossibilities. We fast when demons can be cast out no other way. And Jesus counts on it. He says uh, in Matthew 6, when you fast. When we look back at these, um, these events of the, the past few weeks, we understand that what is needed is not a reformation of Judaism. It's not just about when to fast and when not to fast, but it's the acceptance of a new order. Uh, Judaism was worn out. It was um, a matter of turning from these old rituals of Judaism to the living Jesus who actually lives in his followers and he works through us. What's needed is a radical departure from the old forms, the types, the shadows, to a new energy and a new capacity for joy and power. We expect this of the Messiah coming to earth. But how do you explain this to the disciples of John? Jesus does so masterfully in the verses that follow. Jesus announced a new era using a parable in three parts. The first uh, part of the parable was the folly of sewing a patch on an old garment. In verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Da um, David Gooding in his commentary on Luke refers to the old garment as Judaism's rituals and disciplines the righteousness which is of the law. However good originally, they're now a worn out garment. It's not possible to restore Judaism with elements of the gospel of Christ. The old garment must be replaced. I was uh, walking out to lunch with my coworkers recently and um, one of them uh, commented, oh, you've got a hole in your trousers. Well, <clears throat> it wasn't a hole, it was a patched hole. I had patched it neatly enough, I thought, Glad I didn't patch it with a piece of unshrunk wool. Then after the first wash, it would have left a gaping hole. But if that was distracting to my coworker, I would purchase a replacement pair of trousers, which I did. 
It's difficult for some Jewish Christians to learn that the garment must be replaced. Some, like Paul and Barnabas, accepted it quickly. Others, like Peter, seemed to accept it, but later they compromised their stand. The church itself has not always resisted the temptation to adopt rituals, ceremonies, sacrifices, and a separate clergy, all from Judaism. A.P. Gibbs, in his book on the Lord's Supper, said, From a simple memorial and remembrance feast, the Lord's Supper has been allowed to degenerate into the sacrifice of the Mass. To the accompaniment of a host of prescribed prayers and an ornate ritual in which gorgeous vestments, burning candles, smoking incense, and the altar and many crosses play no part, the bread, the bread and wine are said to be miraculously changed. Christ's warning stands as strong today as it did then. Patch an old garment with a new patch and you'll ruin both. Jesus continued with a second part to his parable. He said, Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Vine, in his Bible dictionary, says of the wineskin, it was a leather bottle. A whole goatskin, for example, would be used with the openings bound up, and when filled, they were tied at the neck. Put new wine in a fresh wineskin, the skin stretches as the wine ferments. Put new wine in an old wineskin that has lost its elasticity. Where can the pressure go? Pow! The wineskin bursts, spilling a gallon of wine and destroying the old wineskin. What does this mean? Bill MacDonald wrote in his commentary, The new wine of free salvation has been poured into the wineskins of legalism. And with what results? The skins are burst and ruined and the wine is spilled and the life-giving drink is lost. The law has lost its terror because it is mixed with grace, and grace has lost its beauty and character, for it is mixed with law works. So we, we have two parts to our parable, the um, unshrunk cloth on the old garment and new wine in old wineskins. We turn to Luke 5.39 for the third part, of the parable. No one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. There's a resistance of the old to the new. The Levitical system had been functioning for much of the 1500 years um, uh, before Christ was born. It has momentum. Some are reluctant to set it aside. And honestly, there are beautiful types and pictures of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament that we find nowhere else. He is the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. He is those um, Levitical sacrifices of uh, Leviticus chapters 1 through 4. He's the scapegoat of Leviticus 16, the chief cornerstone of Psalm 118. He's a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 49.6. He's the silent lamb led to slaughter, 
Isaiah 53, and he's the branch of righteousness, Jeremiah 23. David Gooding said about the um, um, Luke 5.39, he said, There's nothing disrespectful said of Judaism. The garment of Judaism is now old, and there is no denying that it was a good, God-given garment in its day. The wineskins of Judaism have grown old and too tight for the new wine, but they served a good purpose for the old wine. Indeed, it is finally admitted that in some respects, to some people, Judaism will at first taste better than Christianity. That being the case, we have to ask, however, those who cling to Judaism, why? The shadow is good. The shadows of the Old Testament, the types, the pictures that we find there. But why be satisfied with the shadow when the substance is offered? Would you rather have a picture menu of hamburgers and fries? Or would you rather have meat and cheese and ketchup in a bun? Would you rather have a photo of an automobile or a vehicle to take you back and forth to work in the chapel? Would you rather have a drawing of a house or apartment or a place to enter and live and raise your family and enjoy as a home? Would you rather have a portrait of parents or spouse or would you rather have the person themselves? Don't be content with the image of Jesus portrayed in the Old Testament. Receive the person. Isaac Watts wrote, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, took all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. By way of application, then, personally, we must abandon our legalistic leanings. We try as people, as sinners, to earn the desire of God's favor by obedience, by law-keeping. It dates back to the birth of the church. There were some of the sect of the Pharisees, we read in Acts 15.5, from within the church at Jerusalem who believed. uh, They rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise these Gentile believers and to command them to keep the law of Moses. There are those who insist on law-keeping for salvation. It's wrong. It's wrong. This is what Jesus was underscoring with, uh, with these verses. Self-righteousness brings a curse from God, not a blessing. Horatius Bonar wrote, Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul, not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy work alone, my Savior, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. By application, we must turn away from our legalistic leanings, and we must resist those who attempt to bring Judaism into our church. They want to uh, give us a separate clergy. They want to have an altar, a roped-off sanctuary, priestly clothes, and we have to say no to uh, these attempts. 
Jesus showed the end of an era and the beginning of a new by his radical, revolutionary teaching, his unconventional methods in his healing and forgiving, and in his outreach to sinners like Matthew. Jesus has provided something better for us than Judaism. Let's pray. Lord, for, we're grateful for you as Messiah, as the, um, the answer to all of the Old Testament types and shadows and pictures. We're grateful that you are um, so radical in your treatment of sinners, in uh, your expectations of us, your, um, uh, your acceptance of us. And uh, we know no savior uh, aside from yourself, one who loves us, one who um, died for us, one who rose again, and one who leaves this um, beautiful teaching for us to, uh, to help us on our way. We pray that we might have opportunity this week to speak to a needy soul, anxious soul, about, um, about his um, uh, relationship with you, that we might offer him uh, the peace that we have in you. Lord Jesus, amen.